Good morning, friends. We're continuing to work through the book of Ruth this morning. And if you've missed the previous two sessions, I encourage you to catch up on those via our website. Thank you for our, to our readers. And before we go any further, let's pray together. Gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of our hearts and minds be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So as we return to this favourite Old Testament story, things are starting to look up. Having lost her husband and her two boys, having left Bethlehem for Moab to escape famine, Naomi has returned to Bethlehem and she's returning with one of her Moabite daughters-in-law, Ruth, who's expressed a commitment not just to her mother-in-law, but to her people and to her God. And as we pick up the story, chapter two has ended with the emergence of a man named Boaz. And Ruth has been given access to his fields where she can eat with his workers and collect food for her and Naomi. We found out too that Boaz was a relative of theirs, one of their family guardians, all of which is pointing towards help being on the way. And so as chapter three begins, Naomi is talking to Ruth. And for the first time, Naomi is described here as Ruth's daughter-in-law, or mother-in-law even. Elsewhere, she's either been described by her role or by her name, but here all of these things come together. I think it helps draw our attention to Naomi being the one who is initiating uh, what's going on and suggests that it uh, may well have been part of the role of the mother-in-law in that culture to see to the future of her son's widow. First, Naomi encourages Ruth to join Orpah in remaining in Moab in chapter one, and now in very different circumstances, she's making another attempt, all the time looking to ensure that Ruth is well looked after. Now, Naomi is developing a plan to ensure their security, to ensure that Ruth is provided for, and this plan is going to involve or revolve almost entirely around Boaz, who we met in our previous session. We know that Ruth has been working in the fields with Boaz's servants following instructions and we know that Boaz is a relative of theirs. Now at this point as we join the beginning of chapter 3 Naomi seems to know where Boaz is going to be, that he'll be winnowing barley, he'll be sorting out the grain and we're guessing that he'll be there perhaps leading his team ensuring the work is done properly. There's nothing in the text that implies he was actually doing all the work himself. But we saw in the fields in the previous chapter, he likes to be amongst the workers and be sitting and having his evening meal and being part of the team. But having had his meal, um, he'll be going to sleep and Ruth has been told to visit him. It's likely he would have slept there to protect his crops, protect his livelihood, so his workers would have gone, but he would have stayed to ensure everything was kept safe. And Naomi tells Ruth that she's to get ready for this encounter as well which suggests that Naomi thinks it will be a significant one. It's possible that getting dressed up in uh, the way uh, that's described here could be uh, symbolically Ruth coming to the end of the mourning period following the death of her husband, in which case it might be even more significant than Naomi is suggesting. It's possible. But the Hebrew word used here doesn't suggest special finery, though, that may be used for such a thing. It's a general word for clothing. 
Either way, Naomi wants Ruth to be attractive for this visit to the threshing floor. Having a bath would not have been a regular occurrence in those days, not even a weekly practice in ancient Israel. And the use of oil in the way Naomi describes would have been even more unusual. So we're getting drawn to the idea that there's something special happening here. And Ruth would have got that impression from Naomi's instructions as well. And then Naomi goes on and continues and confirms that this is the case. Ruth is told to approach Boaz at night when he's lying down to sleep. She's to lie down too and to uncover his feet. Now, the implications of what Naomi is instructing Ruth to do are, as with much of this story, a little ambiguous. She's got to avoid being seen, a woman present with a man in a public place at night, much less a woman lying next to a sleeping man. This is far from the accepted way things were done. And now the word that we translate as feet is not uh, always the usual word and is uh, sometimes better translated as a common word for legs. So uncover his feet might mean to uncover his legs. It's also not uh, unknown for the ordinary word for feet to be used as a euphemism too. And talk of lying down here gives uh, an undercurrent of a sexual encounter. Now, there's never any indication in the text of the consummation of a sexual relationship, yet the choice of words keeps that possibility in play here. There's an atmosphere full of mystery and ambiguity. And so far in Naomi and Ruth's story, it's already been filled and stretched with strained customs and conventions. Could this be about to become a stretch too far? What's Naomi really suggesting? And how will Ruth then interpret these instructions? Does the end game of Ruth getting married to Boaz really justify the means that Naomi appears to be suggesting? I guess... I read this expecting Ruth to object in some way, but she doesn't. She simply says, I'll do as you've told me to do. It seems an oddly compliant choice for someone that we know already is quite capable of knowing their own mind and of making their own decisions. And then there are the other questions too. Why doesn't Naomi just go to Boaz and suggest that he marries Ruth? Or why not send Ruth to him in less compromising circumstances? In terms of the story that's being told, all of that would lack the narrative drama and tension that we see. The writing of Ruth is clearly using the nighttime encounter to maintain our interest and tension in the story. Is Naomi's plan capitalising on something that's already in the air? Could we take from Boaz's earlier reaction to Ruth and his generosity towards her that there is an attraction there? Possibly. Would Naomi expect to be rebuffed if she approached Boaz herself on Ruth's behalf? We'll see in the verses that follow that Boaz will not, even under the systems and culture and conventions of the time. Uh, Boaz was not obliged to marry Ruth in these moments, as we'll go on to see. What Naomi is planning seems devised, despite the risks, to provide maximum opportunity for encouraging Boaz in the right direction. Now this whole thing is strange for us as 21st century British readers of the text. 
and not least because we don't have the same issues uh, in our culture um, in terms of women's security and being entirely dependent on marriage. Naomi and Ruth are a great example and, and might have stood out in many ways in their day of courage and determination of taking the initiative but their story is still stuck inside a social structure where the long-term security of women depends on being married to a man who has access to economic assets. It's not by accident that the Old Testament consistently talks about the importance of the community caring for the widows and the orphans, those who would be without such support and protection. It's all about God's people being people of compassion for those who aren't secure, who don't have wealth and assets. And Jesus doubles down on this too and brings new emphasis to this message. Being a disciple of Jesus means being compassionate and having a heart for the margins, especially the poor. We read, he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. It's in Luke chapter four. And so the scene for Ruth now shifts to the threshing floor, where we find Boaz, as Naomi had anticipated, and we're told that he's in a good mood. He's done a good day's work, he's had a good meal, he's kicked his shoes off and he is relaxing, he is laying down content. Maybe this is why Naomi thought it might be a good time for Ruth to arrive. And we're told that Boaz is kind of startled into being awake and we don't know what caused that, although we are told that he was startled, which doesn't seem to me uh, to suggest that he was getting up to go to the loo or something. It suggests a more knee-jerk reaction. Perhaps it was a bad dream. Maybe it was a chill because his legs weren't as covered as he, they were before. Whatever it is, he is suddenly awake. And he's awake and he's shocked. Is he dreaming? Did he drink too much? Has he forgotten something? He's dazed and he's confused to find Ruth there with him. And he shakes himself off and he starts to come to and to think. Um, the cogs are whirring. And to be honest, even as it all starts to fall into place in his mind, it doesn't get any better for him. He's an upright, prominent Bethlehem citizen. And this is seriously unusual with the potential to be seriously scandalous. Who are you? he asks. And it could be all sorts of tone to that. It could be surprise and unease and fear and anger. I don't think he's necessarily trying to elicit information. The text doesn't give us much information about exactly what happens. Are you picturing a romantic moment between two mutually attracted people? Or a beautiful, young and needy Ruth forcing herself to connect with a rough, old, haggard but rich older man. Or a wily, scheming Ruth trying to force the hand of the most handsome and wealthy bachelor around. You find all these ways of seeing it and more in the various writings of Ruth. And I guess not really knowing challenges each of us to a, focus on the information that we do have 
and B, to be self-aware enough to realise what we are projecting onto the text, what we bring, what our own experiences and frames of reference do in terms of shaping how we read what we have in the Bible. And that's something good to think about all the time. It's not specific to this story. We don't read through neutral uh, spectacles. We bring all sorts of things when we come to a text. That's not necessarily a problem as long as we're aware that that's what we're doing because that awareness helps us to reach beyond just reading the text in our own image and through our own eyes. Anyway, Ruth replies and she goes on beyond just answering the question. She's clearly got something in mind here. She's wanting to change the nature of their relationship and goes on to give him instructions about what to do next. It's quite a gutsy thing for Ruth to do. The language is symbolic, but its reference to marriage would have been really clear to any ancient Israelite hearing this story. The term garment or cloak is translated from the Hebrew for wing, as in the wing of a bird. And Ruth is using words linked which with words we found in chapter two a fortnight ago, where Boaz previously talked about how Ruth had sought refuge under the wing of Yahweh. And now she is seeking refuge under the wing of God's people and of Naomi's tribe. Her refuge in the God of Israel will be all the more secure if Boaz agrees to her marriage proposal. But why should Boaz marry Ruth? Not because he's been compromised in the middle of the night. No one has seen them and it would do Ruth and Naomi no good to tell anybody. Not because he's attracted to Ruth, which is only a potential undercurrent to the story. And I don't think Boaz is that naive. But instead, because he is their guardian redeemer, their kinsman. The law and norms for the responsibility someone like Boaz would have towards Ruth and Naomi are all about the preservation of family and the preservation of their community and their nation. See, this was at a time when the very existence of their nation was consistently under threat. And so it becomes even more important that together as a nation, they commit to ensuring their survival at every opportunity. We learn, though, that Boaz is not the only kinsman, not the only one who has responsibility for Naomi's welfare and that of her daughter-in-law. Redeemers like Boaz in this situation are to take responsibility for those in difficult circumstances and to stand as their supporters and as their advocates. They are to care and they're to ensure justice for those who may have been unfairly treated. And this redemption language runs right the way throughout the Old Testament with reference to God. And of course, we think of it primarily in relation to Jesus, who offers us forgiveness for our sins and offers us a chance to turn back towards God to find justice in God's kingdom and to know life in all its fullness with peace and joy and hope. In Exodus and in Deuteronomy and in the Psalms, we see God as the redeemer of the whole nation of Israel. Here in Ruth, God is remembered as the redeemer of individuals. When we think of Jesus as redeemer, we think of his redemption for us, for you and me as individuals, but also the redemption of the world. Jesus being one who supports us, who rescues us from desperate and dark places. 
And it's this understanding of God and God's character that provides the clearest template for human acts of redemption, like the one we're hopefully about to see before the story of Ruth ends. This whole motif running through is of how human protection and support, of human compassion and justice being signs of and signposts to and a manifestation of God's care for each person. Part of how we show the world that God exists, that God is alive, that God is at work, is to be people of care and protection and compassion. And Boaz, despite it being in the middle of the night, and everything that's going on seems to immediately get what Ruth is talking about. He comments about how Ruth could have gone off with younger men and that suggests that maybe as someone from Moab, she wouldn't have been bound by the conventions of Israel, that her willingness to marry Boaz goes beyond the call of duty and it will ensure Naomi's security too. What it also does is make good on Ruth's familiar words in chapter one, She really is becoming part of Israel. Their God is her God and their ways are her ways. And it looks like it might just work out. It might just come together. Because Boaz in these moments could have rejected her, could have taken advantage of her, could have rebuffed her, could have humiliated her even. This was full of risks for Ruth. But instead he says, don't be afraid. And when he puts wheels in motion, and more of that next week, he sends her home with food, loading her up with barley, and she heads home to Naomi. Boaz heads into town. Now, when Ruth gets back, Naomi is keen to hear everything that's happened. Has her plan worked? Can the hope that's been building in her heart over recent weeks continue to grow, perhaps even to take root in her life again? Ruth reports everything, including Boaz not wanting Ruth to return to her mother-in-law empty-handed. He gets that this is not just about Ruth. He understands that this is about Naomi. This is about their whole family, their tribe, their nation. And in a way, the key thing we learn in these last verses of the chapter is not anything about the marriage plan, but that Boaz is determined to provide for Naomi too. She came back empty from Moab to Bethlehem. Now the same word is being used to talk of her not being empty-handed anymore. I don't think it's an accident that the same word has been used. It's deliberately drawing us to the way that the story has changed, how her tears of grief are turning to tears of exhausted but hope-filled joy. Now they must wait. And this is in fact the last time we hear Naomi and Ruth speaking in the whole of the book. They've done everything they could possibly do to care for and provide for each other. Right from their first words in chapter one, they've been focused on one another's welfare. And now the burden of care can finally be shared with others too. Naomi and Ruth have consistently in difficult circumstances, offered care and kindness and commitment and compassion. They've shown great courage. They've taken initiative, trusting that God will be with them, trusting that their whole community would live out the patterns for living that were set down to ensure that the poor and vulnerable were cared for. It's a big risk. And in 
the initiative that they've taken, in the decisions that they've made. There are so many challenges that Ruth and Naomi pose to us. Could we live with that sort of courage? Would we be willing to take those sort of risks? Are we willing to take action as well as asking God to help? Sometimes we have things to do. We're part of answering the prayers that we offer to God. Does our trust in God extend beyond what is comfortable and what is familiar? Are we, we who worship the same God as Naomi, are we the kind of community who sees God's redeeming love and kindness and compassion for the vulnerable? And do we seek to reflect that in our lives and in our life together? It's not a question you can answer once, you know. Well, yes, I do believe all those things are important. It's a constant challenge, an ongoing task that comes to all disciples of Jesus. God's heart for the poor has not changed. My prayer is that ours would grow each day. And so as we leave chapter three, what will Boaz do now? Will it all work out or is this all going to fall flat? Well, join us next Sunday when Anne, one of our elders, will be taking us through the end of the story. But we do know that whatever happens, Boaz will do his best. And he grounds his promises to Ruth by his faith in God. He says, as surely as the Lord lives. And friends, as surely as the Lord lives, we know that God can make a way. And we know that God can bring life and light to even the most difficult of places. And for that, friends, we say thanks be to God. Let's pray together. And so, gracious God, we continue to thank you for this wonderful story, the story of courage and adventure and of hope springing afresh. We pray, Lord, that something of Naomi and Ruth's example might be seen in our lives. Would you give us faith to trust in you the way they did? Would you give us faith to take courage, to take action, to bring about change? Lord, would you plant deeper into us hearts and minds of compassion and grace, of commitment and of care, especially for the poor and the vulnerable. Lord, this we ask, not so that it can reflect well on us, but so that people might come to see your nature and your character at work in the world. Lord, may this help others see something of you, we pray. Amen.